Presbyopia Unlocked is an editorially independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Ophthalmic surgeons today have access to advanced presbyopia correcting technologies, but how they are used can differ from surgeon to surgeon. A lot of it has to do with the attitude. It's that willingness and the desire to learn and gain the foundation, the basic knowledge in doing great surgery, being a, really a proactive surgeon for the patient and looking out for the patient. Have faith in yourself. Um, none of these refractive procedures are technically difficult. A lot of it is just having experience and confidence in yourself. How are these technologies being used by surgeons who are newer to practice versus those who are more seasoned physicians? I think to have access to advanced lens technology, to understand the technology, to understand the value it brings to the patient's uh, lifestyle is really incredible and just you'll gain more confidence knowing and having that knowledge. I'm really getting a lot of exposure in terms of this technology and lenses is really has bridged that gap and has really helped me in terms of getting a good amount of exposure with these lenses and foundation to be able to offer this type of technology. Join us as Drs. Shami, Zhu, and Mueller share their experiences and pearls on this episode of Presbyopia Unlocked. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our session. Today, I am with two of my wonderful colleagues, Dr. Brett Mueller and Dr. Dagny Zhu. And we're going to be talking about presbyopia correcting technologies and how uh, they are being used by surgeons who are newer to practice, like my colleagues on this call, uh, as well as those like myself who've been more seasoned in the process. Uh, just as a background as to who I am, I am a cornea refractive and cataract surgeon. I finished my training uh, in fellowship uh, uh, about, gosh, 18 years ago. I'm dating myself here. And just as a background, when I was training as a fellow, uh, there were no uh, premium lenses, really. I mean, I think the most premium option we would offer patients uh, was um, limbal relaxing incisions. I've seen the technology evolve, and with it, I have seen my practice evolve, and, and I have also seen happier patients through the process. But I'm really excited to talk to our colleagues uh, who have been in, in, in their own practices a shorter amount of time, and they really have gone through the training having been exposed uh, to this technology early on and how they have implemented into, into their own practice. Uh, so I would love to invite both of you, Dagny and Brett, to uh, please briefly introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about how many years you've been out of training and what type of practice setting you're in. Dagny, if you'd like to start. Sure. Um, so I'm a board-certified cornea, cataract, and refractive surgeon. I did my fellowship in cornea and refractive surgery at Bascom Palmer, and straight after fellowship, I actually partnered with Envision Eye Centers to buy out a busy refractive practice. So I've been medical director and partner of that practice in Roland Heights, California for about the past two years now. And we do mostly uh, cataract surgeries and refractive surgeries with a little bit of cornea on the side. Fantastic. And uh, Brett? Yeah. So actually, I graduated from the resident, uh, residency at the University of Louisville in 2018, where I was the, the chief resident for the program. And I was actually practicing as a comprehensive ophthalmologist for a year and doing a lot of comprehensive ophthalmology 
and doing a lot of basic manual cataract surgery um, and doing some premiums uh, lenses, but not as much as I wanted. And I really wasn't getting the refractive experience that I thought I was going to get. I then, during that time, had joined the Refractive Surgery Alliance in hopes to get more refractive surgery experience and to join that, that network of refractive surgeons. And I actually came in touch with Greg Parkhurst. And in talking with him, uh, he actually developed a fellowship for me, which I am currently undertaking with him. So I am his first cataract, refractive, and advanced anterior segment uh, fellow currently. And I actually signed on with him and will be joining him as an associate in his practice here in San Antonio in uh, July. Well, that's fantastic. Well, he's lucky to have both you, uh, Brad. He's lucky to have you as part of the team and Dagny. They are very lucky to have you. Um, I've had the pleasure of actually know, uh, knowing Dagny for many years. Uh, he, You were a resident at USC when I was on faculty there. And I have to say, I definitely could see you as a rising star from early on, and and Brett, you too. Um, I'm really honored to be here and talking to you guys. I'd love to hear more about your perspective. Um, again, uh, being newer in in your own practices, and uh, hopefully inspiring our listeners to follow the same kind of progressive approach you've had in uh, implementing new technologies and and really being at the cutting edge right off the bat. Um, I'd love to hear more about uh, what your training was like and what your experience and exposure was to this type of premium presbyopia correcting technologies during training and, uh, you know, how that did or did not set a foundation for you. Uh, sure, I, I can start. I did my residency under uh, Dr. Netta Shami, who is my cornea attending and really one of my early inspirations for entering cornea refractive surgery. And uh, I was... I didn't, I didn't plan that, by the way, Diane. I, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> it just happened naturally, but uh, you were definitely a major part in that. Um, so I was a resident at USC, Doheny, LA County. And our residency at that time, you know, we didn't get much exposure to refractive surgery at all. We were able to implant toric IOLs, but that was about it. Um, I think some of the companies gifted us one multifocal lens to use in a special county patient. But even then, it was really hard to find a perfect candidate because a lot of these patients come from disadvantaged backgrounds and they had a lot of pathology to start with already. And uh, we really didn't have any access to femtosecond lasers. I think they got it the year after I graduated from residency and we didn't get to do any LASIKs either. Uh, we just had to observe some attending. So it was really minimal in uh, residency. So that was one of the reasons that I decided to pursue a fellowship in cornea and refractive surgery at Bascom Palmer, just to gain more experience in that field. And fellowship was definitely a lot better in terms of my exposure to refractive surgery. We got to recruit a lot of our own patients for LASIK, those who are willing or brave enough to have a fellow do it for them at a discounted rate. Um, we couldn't do a lot of multifocal lens surgery, but the attendings would allow us to actually do the uh, femtosecond laser treatment on a lot of their patients. So that was a really good experience, just learning how to operate that technology and how to dock properly. And because the faculty at Bascom Palmer was so large, we got exposure to a lot of different techniques and different platforms that a lot of our attendings used. So 
as a fellow, I got certified on almost every single laser platform. So including the LensX and the Catalyst femtosecond laser. And then for LASIK also, I was certified on the IFS, Interlace, VizX, and Wavelight. So it, it was a really broad experience. Um, interestingly enough, when I entered private practice shortly after graduating, none of those platforms were available in the practice that I bought. So I had to get recertified anyway. Um, overall, I would say it was still, even though the refractive surgery experience there was much better than residency, I would still, it was, I would say it's still pretty much dominated by cornea pathology. I was doing mostly advanced cases uh, for PKPs and end stage kind of corneal infections. And so even after graduating from fellowship, I had a lot to learn. And so I really felt like the learning curve was super steep in the beginning, especially for someone like me who just bought directly into a refractive practice. And I felt like those six months, those first six months were especially hard. And it was almost like a mini refractive fellowship, which is similar to what Brett sounds like he's doing right now. But, you know, I learned a lot really quickly and I felt like, uh, you know, I had good experience in high stress uh, environments for my training. So I felt like I had the clinical and surgical skills to succeed. I just needed some more time to develop that experience and the confidence that I feel like I now have to succeed in private practice. Well, I think that's that's very um, comparable to many residency programs uh, that really the exposure is mostly to high, high level pathology, as you said. And um, often residency programs are based out of hospitals where Patients are underserved, and and so premium um, technology in lens platforms uh, like presbyopia treating um, IOLs, for example, are not necessarily available, nor are they indicated in a patient who has multiple uh, other, uh, you know, comorbidities. Um, but I agree with you. I think a lot of this has to do with the attitude. Uh, it's that willingness and the desire. Uh, to learn and get gain the foundation, the basic knowledge in doing uh, great surgery, being an, a, you know really a proactive surgeon for the patient and looking out for the patient, and then seeking out the information and the data and uh, uh, basically validating the advanced technology that the attendings are potentially offering to their private patients. Um, and I think if you you know if residents have that attitude where Obviously, they're focused on their own patient pool, but also want to learn what's done in the in in the other set of types of patients or the um, uh, attendings private clinics, for example, and seek that information from the attendings. There is an opportunity to passively learn, and when you then finish your training, uh, have that commitment to want to offer that to your own patients. Then you're really going to stay at the forefront of the field, right? What was your experience like in your training? Were you exposed to premium uh, lenses, more specifically presbyopia correcting technologies and such? Um, and did that help set that foundation for you? You know, a lot of my, uh, a lot of the training that I got and exposure that I got for, for premium lenses is very sim similar to Dagny's experience and what she kind of expressed. In, in residency, you know, the, Alcon and Johnson and Johnson give you like a certain amount of lenses that you can use on patients, but really your patient population that you're dealing with, it, it's very challenging to find an ideal candidate. A lot of them have comorbid conditions like glaucoma, uh, and pretty advanced glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, ERM. So trying to find a candidate first off is, is very challenging. 
and you know, I got to put in a decent amount of toric lenses uh, in residency. You know, in total, I did a good amount of cataract surgery, probably about 340 cases. My torics, I probably did about 50 or 60 toric lenses, but in terms of presbyopic correcting lenses, I would say probably about 10 to 15, which is probably in terms of residency programs and residents is a lot, but really is not a good amount to get a, a good handle on this technology and the lenses and what it can offer patients. And so, you know, I, I started my um, stint as a comprehensive ophthalmologist working, you know, really wanting to offer this technology to patients, but really feeling um, like a, a, a gap that I didn't really quite understand the technology, how to talk to patients uh, before the surgery and how to coach them through it afterwards as well. I mean, it really did present a challenge to me. And so, you know, during my fellowship right now as a, a refractive fellow under Dr. Parkers, I'm really getting a lot of exposure in terms of this technology and lenses it has really has bridged that gap and has really helped me in terms of getting a good amount of exposure with these lenses. In addition to going to the different meetings as well, in terms of going to Millennial Eye and those sorts of things has also helped me to get a lot of good exposure and a, a good knowledge base and foundation to be able to offer this type of technology and the confidence in order to do so for these, uh, for patients. Well, I, I'll tell you a little bit, that's fantastic. And, and I have to commend both of you on, again, your commitment to uh, forging ahead and, uh, you know, breaking barriers to, to, to your um, uh, learning curve and just, you know, moving forward and, and prioritizing offering your patients the best care possible and the most advanced technology possible. My own personal experience and, and, and just briefly was, again, I didn't have any training. In, in my training, I had no exposure to premium lenses. And it wasn't until several years later that the first multifocal lens or even uh, Toric became available. And I um, reached out to uh, our Alcon rep at the time and I said, hey, who is the one who's doing the most number that you think I can learn from? And they uh, uh, sent me actually to Sam Maskett. They said, Sam Maskett has done quite a number. And I called uh, Sam Maskett and he, you know, greatly generous uh, with his knowledge base. And he's always been so amazing. Didn't even know me. And I said, do you mind? I had been two years out of fellowship. I said, do you mind if I come down and spend a day or two in clinic just to hear you converse with the patients, how you present this technology to them, watch you in surgery and just pick your brain. And uh, incredible advocate, amazing uh, mentor. And be he became a mentor after that, where I would call him and ask questions. But it wasn't until I took that step that I was able to really gain that knowledge base. Now with, you know, societies like Millennial Eye and, and publications and online uh, information and the amount of resources available and the ability to not only proactively read, but also reach out to colleagues like yourselves, like the two of you, for that kind of mentorship. I mean, I really don't see an ex a reason not to do this. Um, this is the way, it's not even the way of the future anymore. To do cataract surgery and to do it well, this is equivalent to you knowing how to use a second instrument. I mean, to know how to use premium lenses is in my mind is an important part of being a cataract surgeon. It, I can see patients coming back if you don't offer premium lenses to them, that coming back after having heard their cousin having had a premium lens implanted for them, asking doc, why didn't you offer it to me? 
and uh, potentially, you know, having the surgeon be liable for that. After all, we are consenting our patients, fully consenting them to all their options, and these are options available and should be presented to patients or candidates. So I'm really proud of you guys for having really taken a proactive approach. So now that you have uh, brought this new technology into your practice and your very proactive approach, how has it changed your practice? And what are some key learnings that you've had in the last year? So for my practice, I do a lot of premium cataract surgery. And, you know, ever since the trifocal panoptic lens came out about last fall, it's been my go-to lens. And I have to say it's been a game changer. Um, I'm really lucky that, you know, as a sole surgeon at my practice, I'm just fortunate to have had so much experience with uh, refractive technologies this early in my career. And so when that panoptics came out, I was you know, got to be one of the first surgeons in the country to implant it. And in my experience, patients are really happy with it. I feel like it's made it a lot easier to counsel patients. You know, you no longer have to mix and match. You don't have to make them decide whether they value near or intermediate more. This lens kind of, you know, does it all. And just in general, I just feel like the candidates, you know, who are suitable for premium technology, it's really increased just because of the improved technologies that we've had. So, you know, dry eye treatment has improved a lot. And um, there also used to be a lot of fear of using multifocals in like post-LASIK patients. But I feel with time, we've seen pretty good results with that. And at least in my experience, uh, patients have been really happy. And so you can get them out of glasses again. In my practice, I see a lot of tough cases too. These patients who are post-RK or with keratoconus, and they have really high expectations, you know, even after counseling them, they actually really want to be able to see without glasses as much as possible. We really are looking for that great refractive outcome. And I feel like just with all the formulas we have, the calculations, the aura technology, and uh, even some of the lenses that we have, toric lenses, and even some of the monofocals, they have some extended depth technology. Um, some of the ones I've used are, you know, the Invista or the Nanoflex. I feel like you can give those patients who previously weren't candidates for multifocal surgery, actually an opportunity to have some presbyopia correction. You know, a lot of these patients can get to J2 sometimes. So we just live in a really exciting time. And I just feel fortunate to be able to have had access to a lot of these technologies. That's great. And Brett, how about you? What are some technologies that you have enjoyed taking advantage of and offering to your patients? And what are some uh, kind of pearls that you have learned this last year? Yeah, so before joining Dr. Parkers, I really didn't have access to much of any technology, no Femto or anything. And after joining, we have access to Aura, we have access to the Lens AR Femto, which I must say is a very impressive laser. It enables you to use Iris Registry, Iris registry in order for you to be able to mark that access of where the astigmatism is. And then by in doing so, it, it makes these little nubs right in the capsule and so you know exactly where the astigmatism is and where to align your torax. And also in terms of presbyoptic corrective lens, you know, when I first started with his, uh, with his practice in July and with my fellowship, we were using a lot of the J&J &J lenses in their platform, which are very impressive lenses. And we were doing a lot of mix and matching where we do a ZK boo in one eye and a ZL boo in another, or a symphony lens in one eye or a ZL boo in another. But when the panoptics came out, you know, back in September, we have, you know, pretty much completely flipped and we have been offering panoptics to patients and it has really been an absolute game changer. I mean, it's very easy 
to, you know, for patients to comprehend on the preoperative side that we are going to target all three zones instead of, you know, beforehand, we were having to spend a lot of time explaining, okay, well, in one eye, you're going to, you're going to be able to see a distance and intermediate. And then the other eye is going to be for distance and near and just patients just had a really hard time comprehending that concept. But with the panoptics, we say, Hey, look, we got this lens. It's an incredible lens. We're able to target distance, intermediate, and up close. And they just are able to grasp that very well. Our conversion rate's very high, um, about 85%. And we have really seen just with this implementation of the panoptics that our multifocal use has really gone up dramatically. And so, you know, in terms of the panoptic technology, I mean, the, the results that we have seen have really been very impressive for us. I mean, it's not uncommon that we get patients that are seeing 20-20 at distance, J1 at intermediate, and J1 at near on post-op day one. And we've heard a lot of common, you know, a lot of other people, you know, expressing similar sentiments as well. And, you know, I recall one very pretty cool story uh, to just to give an idea of just how incredible this technology is, is it was a 35-year-old patient. She had a traumatic cataract in one eye However, she was also like a negative uh, seven, negative eight uh, patient as well. So, you know, we had to correct the, we had to do cataract surgery in the traumatic cataract eye, but we decided to put an ICL in her other eye, which was, you know, a normal, a normal eye. And she, so we did the cataract surgery in the one eye and the ICL in the other. And she is ecstatic and incredibly happy in terms of her overall vision. I mean, she can tell. A little difference between the the panoptic eye and her her regular uh, her regular eye, but she says in terms of her clarity at intermediate and near, it's very similar to both eyes, which I think is very impressive because this is a patient that has full accommodative ability in that eye, and she's comparing it to a panoptic eye, and I think that speaks to the the technology and how good this optic is, and for and for patients. That's a really interesting case. And I have to say, I have had the similar experience. Um, mixing, matching, mix and matching lenses had always been quite challenging, uh, a lot of chair time. Now with the panoptics, it is so much easier to present it to our patients. Um, and I too have seen a lot of patients who are incredibly happy, J1, 2020, and minimal glare halos. Um, and it has made it a lot easier to present it to our patients. So. In my experience over the last 10 years of having uh, seen the evolution in the technology, the chair time has been lessened with uh, over time as the technology has improved, partly because my confidence in the technology has gone up. Now, and I have to say, this is a pearl that I would share with all of you, um, is I used to present cataract surgery and start with the standard, with the basics, and then I would build on the basic. And what now I do uh, which has been wonderful um, approach to presenting these technologies to patients is I start with the best option for the patient, regardless of the cost. And I say, if we, you know, this is after having spoken to the patient and really getting a sense of their lifestyle and how they use their eyes. And I often ask, tell me, how do you use your eyes? How do you use your vision? And from that story, I then suggest to them what I think is the best option for them. And then if you know, and then I back off from that. 
So we also offer light adjustable lens, which has been a, a wonderful paradigm shift in, in the way we approach our patients too. But essentially what I do is I start with what I think is the absolute best option for the patient based on their needs. So truly a customizable approach to, or personalized approach rather, to how I present the options to the patient. And then if I don't think that they're the right patient for the for light adjustable lens or panoptics, I mention it and I say, this is why I don't think this is right for you. Because I do think that patients should understand uh, all the different options I offer and why I think they would be ideal for the one option versus the other. And that has changed our conversion rate immensely. Um, we too have a high conversion rate for femto, but now our premium lens conversion is now upwards of uh, 60 to 70%, which has been a really wonderful conversion. And I, I suspect it's going to be, become even higher um, as we approach our patients this way. So to close, I would love to ask you just very short, maybe one or two sentences, if you could share uh, a, a pearl or inspiration for other young uh, surgeons out there um, early in their careers, how they should approach this and what kind of a, 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 a cheerleading approach to please, uh, how, what would you say to them so that they would be inspired after this hearing us to go and find resources to then implement this into their practice? So for the younger surgeons, you know, where I was only a couple of years ago, I would say, you know, have faith in yourself. Um, none of these refractive procedures are technically difficult. A lot of it is just having experience and confidence in yourself. And I, I agree with all of you in saying that a mentor in the beginning is so crucial. I mean, Netta, you were so amazingly proactive, you know, to seek that out early on. And I feel like there's so many more opportunities for the young ophthalmologists now. There's so many fellowships available in refractive surgery. You have to go to where the experience is. And a lot of the times it's not in the academic institutions. It's in private practice, sort of exactly what Brett is doing. And, you know, even in my first six months, even though I bought this practice, you know, it's a really scary thing to do. I was lucky that, you know, the surgeon I purchased from agreed to stay on and help me transition. And so it wasn't as scary because she was there and I could, you know, seek her advice and mentorship. So I would just say, you know, the resources are out there, just be proactive, look for them. And when you're ready to commit, I think you really need to uh, look into getting the best equipment possible. You can't do great surgery without great equipment. So go get the femtosecond laser, get the best topographers, get the OCT maculas to do your good screening. And you really have to have access to LASIK, I think, to get perfect results. I mean, a lot of my patients are happy with the 2020 J1, J1 plus, and you can't get that every time. And so it's nice to have LASIK at your disposal. And sometimes you have to, you know, lease until you get the numbers and sometimes buy used. But I think the investment is well worth it in the end. You know, very similar to what Dagny was saying, I think the most important thing that any young surgeon can have coming out of training, whether it be residency or fellowship, is that you need to find a mentor. You need someone there that can, that can help you out because there's still so much that we need to learn. And to have somebody there that is in your corner, there to help you out, that you can call upon uh, is, is very important. And that they, and one that has exposure with this technology. Now, this mentor doesn't need to be, you know, you don't need to do a fellowship, even though I do think it helps to have a mentor. I mean, you can be somebody that you join in your practice. I, unfortunately, my first practice, you know, my uh, didn't really, have a mentor or anyone like that. However, I sought mentors out at different meetings that I attended, or I would go to like 
a different practice and like follow another ophthalmologist around that was a refractive surgeon, somebody that I wanted to emulate. Uh, even my fellow residents, I would consider mentors, like uh, residents that had graduated before me that was experiencing with this technology in terms of, you know, presbyopic corrective lenses, uh, toric lenses. I would ask them, hey, you know, what patients would be good? Would this patient be a good patient for me or a good candidate for me to put this lens in? And getting a good dialogue going between uh, me and, and uh, you know, fellow ophthalmologists. And I think that really helps. And so, you know, and secondly, in terms of getting exposure to presbyopic correcting lenses, you know, as we were saying, a lot of us don't really have a lot of exposure when it comes to that coming out of residency and even coming out of fellowship is don't let that be a hindrance in trying this technology. It These lenses are incredible technology and these pay and, you know, many ophthalmologists out there are getting incredible results and there's no reason why any young ophthalmologist can't do the same. And I think what's a good pearl to start off with is start off with the easy patients. I mean, you know, the ones that are that are laid back, that you know are going to have an amazing outcome, no matter, you know, what you do surgically wise, you know, they have a perfectly healthy looking eye. There's nothing else that's going on with them. All they have is that cataract and they're just like this amazing personality, very laid back. You know, they're going to do well and start implanting in those patients first. And then once you see how amazingly happy these patients are going to be, you then are going to start to build your confidence, your confidence and your comfort level with this technology. And then that's then going to enable you to put them into more patients and you're going to offer them even more and more and more and just being able to, to see how great it is and, and the, and how great and how happy your patients are going to be as a byproduct of that. And then, and, and you know, lastly, I really think that you need to also invest in the technology. Uh, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people and, and I was in that same camp of saying, Oh, you know, Femto's not worth it. Well, I'm telling you, it's worth it. It's it's incredible what this what Femto can do in terms of getting amazing results in premium cataracts and refractive surgery. And so, uh, you know, I really think that it's something that a lot of new surgeons need to adopt. And lastly, you know, uh, and one last thing too is I just really think to it's really important to have a good skill set in, in terms of being able to learn. LASIK or PRK as well. You don't need to know how to do it right off the bat and don't let that be a hindrance if you don't know how to do that in adopting this technology. But I think learning how to do LASIK and PRK can help you have more confidence, offer this technology, because if you have that unhappy patient that then comes in that needs to have an enhancement, you can then uh, offer that for the patient as well. I just wanted to add one more pearl regarding lenses. I think a lot of young colleagues, they're afraid to go into refractive surgery and start using multifocal lenses because of some of the side effects that they've heard about or experienced personally. But I just wanted to point out that a lot of those can be actually very well treated if you can recognize them. And so it's one of those things where you can no longer rely on Snell and visual acuity. I've had a lot of patients who were 2020 J1+, but they were unhappy. And that may have been because of dry eye in which you need to treat their dryness. Could have been because of temporal dysphotopsias, which I've had to do reverse optic capture for, or sometimes even glare and halos, which pilocarpine works really well for. And the thing that gets missed the most, I think, are tiny refractive errors. Sometimes you just have, you know, 0.5 diopters of astigmatism. And normally, 
you know, with the monofocal patients do very well, but in multifocals, these patients are very unhappy. So if I had a patient with about half a diopter of astigmatism, a quarter of myopia, and he was 2060 J5. And as soon as I did the LASIK correction for that tiny amount, he was 2020 J1 plus and super happy. So I think a lot of the times you really have to listen to the patient and not rely on visual acuity to really reach perfection in this, in this unique group. Those are, those are wonderful pearls. You touched on very important uh, uh, factors involved in really uh, elevating your practice style. I would also add that put the f- patient first and foremost, as we all do. Uh, we owe it to our patients to offer them technology that has been proven safe, effective, and will give them the outcomes that they may not even know are available to them. So it's our job to present them to uh, present these options to our patients and really um, uh, add them to uh, our uh, armamentarium. Uh, I think to have access to advanced lens technology, to understand the technology, to understand the value it brings to the patient's uh, lifestyle is really incredible and just will gain, you'll gain more confidence knowing and having that knowledge. Uh, the other thing I would add is I don't want, if someone doesn't have access to a laser to do LASIK, I did not for the first five to six years of my career, I didn't allow that to be an impediment to me bringing on advanced lens technology into my practice. What I did, I I reached out to a local LASIK surgeon and I asked if they would partner with me in taking care of these patients. And I would then, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, it was a long time ago, I negotiated a, a cost that would be acceptable And when I would present advanced lens technology to my patients, I would tell them that a small percentage of patients will need a touch-up and that my associate in in our community down the street will have to do that for you. And this is how much extra cost it would be. Um, And it worked beautifully. That was the hurdle that that I had to surpass to be able to increase the volume in my practice. So I totally agree that being able to do touch-ups is important, but... I don't necessarily think that that necessarily needs to be an impediment as there are so many opportunities to partner with with, uh, colleagues in the community who who would be willing to help. And then lastly, going to meetings, reaching out to mentors. You now, you uh, listeners have the three of us as potential um, uh, resources for yourself. Please reach out to us, to other smaller societies to really find uh, as much inspiration as possible to be able to elevate your practice style and offer the best care to to your patients. So with that, it's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to the two of you incredible stars in ophthalmology. I feel inspired uh, to, I feel like I need to catch up with the two two of you. You guys are incredible. You have really uh, set a pace of of, uh, advancing your your career in in an incredible way that Uh, your star is risen and I'm excited to watch your careers grow and evolve uh, further. Thank you so much. This is a great opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, this has been, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you to Dr. Shami, Zhu and Mueller for sharing their experiences and thank you for tuning in. Presbyopia Unlocked is an editorially independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Be sure to tune in next time.